2013, I got a call from a donor named Karen. She was like, I want to give you guys 50 bucks. I had started Dig Deep at the time. We were working in, in South Sudan and in Cameroon, building water systems. Really, really great work. Um, she's like, I want to give you 50 bucks and I want you to spend it in the US. And I was like, lady, come on. Like, why don't you let me spend the money where it's really needed? This is the richest country on earth. And she's like, I can't believe you're supposed to be an expert on this and you don't know, you know, that, that there are people in this country who don't have any access to water. And she had been doing a, a Habitat for Humanity style project on the Navajo Nation, the country's largest reservation. And they were building houses without bathrooms and kitchens. And she was like, what the hell? And her, her colleagues were like, yeah, I mean, there's no running water in this town. So why would we build those? Hello, friends. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. I got to say, friends, I feel good this morning. I got up early, walked to my voting location, and voted in the New York primary. Now, I know these primaries are happening at all different times all over the country. Some have already happened, some have yet to happen. Today, it's happening here in New York, in Florida, and in Oklahoma. Next month, it's happening in Delaware, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island. As the November midterms inch closer and closer, it is important, it is incredibly important for each one of you, each one of us, to make our voice heard and our voices collectively heard. Voting is so fucking important. It really, really is. I know it can feel discouraging when we look at our political landscape, but the way that we change that is by voting every single chance we can and for many of us to run for office, one of the 500,000 offices that you can run for in this country. So during these days and Leading up to November, research your candidates. Please do the homework. Make sure you know who is for what, what they think about the things that are important to you and your neighbors and the other people around you. Have a plan for how you'll vote. Talk with your boss about taking off work if needed, but please be prepared. These upcoming elections are so vital for the future of democracy in this country. And I always, when I say these things, about our political landscape, what's happening here in the US, I recognize that there are people from all over the world listening to this podcast, but I also recognize that most of the listeners are here in this country. So forgive me, our global friends, every once in a while, I need to say these things, I need to share these things, and this really applies for everybody as well. Everyone should be voting and getting involved politically. We just have some very interesting and vital, incredibly important elections coming up here in this country. So vote, vote, vote. One more thing before I introduce my incredible guest to you today. Uh, some news. Frederick Beekner died last week. A very sad day for so many, myself included. If you don't know who Beekner is, who I'm talking about, I implore you to change that today. Google is your friend. Beekner was a poet, essayist, preacher, theologian, and author of, if my numbers are correct, 14 fiction books and 13 nonfiction books. But don't be put off by me describing him as a preacher or a theologian. The New York Times described him as a novelist with a religious bent. 
he was known for as a theologian and as a preacher who never was a pastor. He never had a congregation. He was known as someone who asked the questions, doubted, leaned into the mystery of everything. Uh, in fact, I highly recommend you read that New York Times article written the day he died, August 15th. So go look for it. And I bring up Beekner's death for lots of reasons, but I want to share two quotes of his that I've been thinking about this past week since he died. I want to share those quotes with you and you'll see why. They're incredibly important. They're incredibly powerful and inspiring. And they also apply to us, the Let's Give a Damn community. First one, quote, whatever you do with your life, whatever you end up achieving or not achieving, the great gift you have in you to give to the world is the gift of who you alone are. Your way of seeing things and saying things and feeling about things, that is like nobody else. If so much as a single one of you were missing, there would be an empty space at the great feast of life that nobody else in all creation could fill. End quote. That quote has always made me feel pretty much all of the things. And it has empowered me to speak up and speak out and be, and to try to figure out who I alone am because there's only one Nick Lapara and there's only one Beekner and there's only one you. And the second quote, one life on this earth is all that we get whether it is enough or not enough, and the obvious conclusion would seem to be that at the very least, we are fools if we do not live it as fully and as bravely and as beautifully as we can. These quotes tell me that Beekner would have been very glad to be part of the Let's Give a Damn community and would have fit in very well in the Let's Give a Damn community. And that makes me happy. Makes me happy that we're building something that someone like Beekner could partake in, realize the messiness of life, and want to make change alongside with us. So remember this, friends, that at the very least, we are fools if we do not live it as fully and bravely and beautifully as we can. Okay, now for my guest this week. You are in for a treat. George McGraw is an absolutely delightful human that has been giving a damn for the better part of his life, uh, and especially over the past 10 years, very meaningful ways. George McGraw is a leading expert on water and sanitation in the US and around the world. He currently serves as the founder and CEO of Dig Deep, the only wash, wash means water, sanitation, and hygiene, the only wash organization solely focused on the United States. George is a leading queer voice in social change, entrepreneurship, and environmental justice. He is an Ashoka Fellow, a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network, and former social entrepreneur in residence at Stanford University. This conversation made me incredibly sad that millions of Americans, you know, America, the wealthiest and most prosperous country on the planet, made me sad that millions of Americans living in this country don't have running hot or cold water or toilets or showers in their homes. And this lack of water affects their lives in so many seen and unseen ways. It's tragic. But while I am and was sad at this reality, was being during our conversation and still am right now thinking about it, 
I have so much hope that we can end this crisis because people like George and organizations like Dig Deep are doing this good and hard work. So get ready. This is a fantastic conversation. I found it super helpful. I hope you will as well. Now, before we dive into this conversation, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show. Anything goes. I just love hearing from you. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. And now let's get right into my conversation with my new friend and fellow damn giver, George McGraw. Let's go. It's a pleasure to have you on the Let's Give a Damn podcast, George. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Nick. What's up? Uh, what's up is a lot. A lot's up. I know for you, <laughs> for you, for you, and for me, uh, we, we've got a lot going on. We are busy people trying to I mean, give if you're a not damn. Busy, you're dead. Yeah, I totally. completely agree. Completely agree. And and we, we were talking before we record that more times than not lately, it seems like I am having to reschedule or postpone, whether it's my fault or somebody else needs to reschedule. It's taken a couple times for us to get this on the calendar, you know, because it was originally around, I was originally approached by your team about this June 28 um, thing that we're going to talk about that you, yeah, that you yeah. all released on June 28. That, that came and went. Um, and here we are in August. Obviously, the things that you wrote, the research that you released is still very relevant today. So no harm done there. But it's been a couple months of us trying to get this together. So glad you're here. We've got so much to dive into over the next hour. So let's get right to it. I always love to begin conversations. Um, there's so many great interviewers out there that begin and they get right into the matter at hand. Water in this case, like let's talk water. For me, that's not interesting because let's give a damn is all about the individuals. Like, yes, there's a lot of people working on water. There's a lot of people working on water uh, here, abroad, so on and so forth. But you, your story is unique. And so I always love to start with some story. I always love to figure out who George McGraw is, where George came from, how this whole thing came together. And so I'd love to spend, you know, maybe the first third of our conversation uh, talking about the people, places, and things that shaped you, uh, the things that ultimately led to you getting into addressing these, the incredible need of water, uh, not abroad, not in, not in Africa, not in South America, here, right here in our own backyard, a place that most people, I would imagine, wouldn't even think that that was an issue, right? And, and yet millions and millions of people need it so desperately. And so let's start there. Go back as far as you want to. I won't tell you to start, you know, when you're whatever, from when you were born, you start wherever you want to. But give us some of the people, places, and things that uh, made George into who George is today. Oh, man. Okay, so I, I think this is a great way to start this conversation, first of all, because it usually is like, you know, just digging into the problem right away. And it's like, what is what is the context? Um, and I recently had a chance to think a lot about this. I, I joined an organization called Ashoka as a fellow, and they really dig into like, what is your journey as a social entrepreneur? And like, why did that lemonade stand or that um, you know, violent incident or that place you were born, like, how did that have an impact on you? And I think um, that was the first time I was really confronted with that question. And I'm happy to hear it again. I think for me, 
Um, my answer to that question has been, has been about hospitality. Um, mm. I, I grew up as a closeted queer kid in like, not a very open and accepting environment, like very religious, conservative, loving, certainly. And I have a great relationship with my family, but, um, tough environment and spent most of my life in the closet. Um, and always really yearned, I think, for like a home that was um, more accepting, more open, more nurturing. And I think it's my my life's work, my like vocation to help other people experience that in their home. And for me, that has meant working in water and sanitation, helping people get the running water and the working toilets and the taps and the sinks that that they need to live like healthy, happy lives to be truly human inside their houses. Um, something I, I really craved. I love the approach there. Um, I don't love that you had to go through some really hard times to get these realizations about what you wanted to do in life. Um, but, but at the same time, I'm it, it, knowing what I know about you, what I've read about you, what I've listened to so far, even before our conversation, I don't think you would probably take any of that back, any of the hard times no because it made, it made you who you are today, right? Um, talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, because I too, I, I still dip my toes in uh, the faith religion arena still. I have not left mm-hmm. it. Um, but what I experience now in terms of God in my faith are, couldn't be more different than what I experienced growing up. So could you talk a bit more about, um, yeah, what that environment was um, and did you have any, and I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but did you have any, were there, okay, so it wasn't a very accepting environment which forced you to stay in the closet for a long time, but were there any people around you that were safe spaces for you even in the midst of uh, 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 a bunch of people and institutions that wouldn't uh, accept you as you were and are? Man, I think, I mean, yes, absolutely. Yes. And you're right. I wouldn't change it for an instant. I think that, I think that, that, um, that pressure, that crucible that a lot of queer people go through, you know, that coming out process that like spending time with yourself and, and coming to terms with who you are and what you want. And the fact that that's a journey and then presenting that to other people and leaving yourself vulnerable to their feedback, especially people that are so important to you. I think that is kind of like an alchemy or a magic that makes queer people so powerful as, as friends, as listeners, as problem solvers, like that's our superpower. Um, and of course, like I want a world in which people don't have to come out anymore and like they don't face that adversity, but for now, like there's definitely, there's definitely some beauty to that. And I think for me, that's what religion has been too. Like I, I still, um, I'm, I'm very spiritual. I'm also deeply religious. I'm a member of a, a, of a community, an Episcopal community here in Los Angeles called All Saints. That is, I think like truly the best of Christianity. I remember, I remember going to the church the first time, um, and it was during the beginning of the Syrian war um, that's still going on now. And I remember the, the, the sort of priests, you know, black, white, female, male, queer on the altar saying like, you know, we're moving out of the residence so that we can accept some Syrian refugee families to come live here. And I was like, wow. whoa, like that's, that's, that's what it means. Like, that's what the point is. Um, so yeah, a, a very different system, but not so different than the one I grew up in. And I did find like, I, I, 
I grew up um, in a very conservative Roman Catholic household, and there is there is that beauty to the system despite the the difficult that the institutionalization and sort of empire has brought to this otherwise very progressive message of human connection and love and dignity. And um, I think that there are these people even inside those institutions who are striving for good and doing incredible things. I remember struggling with my own sexual identity and like, that's so core to who you are as a human. And I remember going to confession, like so many Catholics do so many times, just like riddled with guilt. Um, And in my twenties, I went to a, a church, a parish here in Los Angeles and a, a Franciscan friar heard my confession and he was just like so stunned that I was so upset and was struggling with this so much. And he's like, you know, will you come around the screen and like sit with me and let me help you? And it, we began a, a friendship and we'd see each other for years, um, once a week, once every two weeks. And he really helped me, you know, come out to my family and approach myself with honesty and, and understood that there's a, a place for me in this in this world that is, I don't know, safe and dignified. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I love that a Franciscan friar working within a religious system that overall, again, not there are particular people and groups within it that are very right. accepting and very welcoming, but overall his authority, though the authority figures are saying, don't, don't promote that. Don't foster that. And yet he said, you know, he embraced you and brought you into his friendship circle and helped you uh, ultimately come out. I love that. I, <laughs> I remember I, in that conversation early on him being like, it's Christmas and you're being, you know, dishonest with yourself and dishonest with others. And I want you to come out by Easter. And he's like, I'll put all my clerics and fly home with you if you need me to. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it was incredible. That's amazing. That's true friendship though. And I, yeah. uh, you know, as, as much as, as much harm as the Catholic Church and other groups like it, large groups like it, have harmed so many people. I'm so blessed to know people like your Franciscan friar friend here, even here in New York City, my friend, Father James Martin, who has been a fierce advocate for yeah, LGBTQ people within the Catholic Church and has helped. And there's so many others. There are, there are uh, LGBTQ flag-flying uh, Catholic parishes here in New York City, uh, right? I mean, they're clearly defying what their church says, and they're there's no they're not making any excuses for it. They're just doing it. Um, I saw that you are currently serving uh, as a Stanford University social entrepreneur in residence, and I'm starting a similar residence um, at Middle Church here in New York. I'm not sure if you've heard of Middle Church, um, D- Dr. Jackie Lewis. Uh, they just asked me to sort of be their first entrepreneur in residence. And I'm so excited because a church like that is a church that I wouldn't be, I'm not embarrassed at all. I'm not embarrassed by my faith. I'm not embarrassed by how I feel about God and what I think is happening in the world. But a lot of churches, I'm embarrassed. It, you know, I would be embarrassed to talk about my association with them. And middle church is a church that I'm like, no, they I'm I'm not fearful that Ben, one of the queer pastors there, or Jackie Lewis or others, I'm not fearful they're going to say anything or do anything in this city and beyond that I would have to, you know, because they, they are a very welcoming and accepting environment. And again, it lines up. That, that's, that's what I think our faith and what God is trying to do anyway in the world is bring more people in, not 
make the group smaller that gets in and everybody else fuck you like you sorry sorry you, <laughs> yeah, did, you didn't get I mean, in imagine. you didn't get in yeah what kind of god is it? i i i struggle like i'm i'm not on this maybe as as easy or i don't have as much ease with it as maybe you do i i still have trouble talking about the fact that i practice religion or that i have a faith that's not just sort of like an amorphous spirituality especially in my queer community where so many people have been hurt for so long by these yeah. religious systems that were have been built to to oppress them and suppress them and and continue to do it in like new and surprising and especially torturous ways even today and i think you know for queer people in many cases like there's this moment where you can either reconcile yourself to it and and accept it and let it destroy part of you or you can completely reject it and you know maybe that part of you that did identify with it or love it also gets destroyed or there's this middle ground that i think is hard to find but if you're lucky enough to have people in your life like that friar for me for instance they can kind of midwife it for you you can come to a more a more mature understanding that you know that religion belief spirituality isn't about a system it's about for me it's about a way of being and thinking in the world that acknowledges that everything is paradox and that two yeah. things can be true at the same time. And the work to reconcile that in yourself and to see the world um, and your purpose as more than just this black and white thing, like that's, that's the work. Um, and I found a faith system and tradition that like helps me do that. And and some people have other things that help them do that too, outside of those systems. Yeah, I I have found that in the Episcopalian Church as well. I'm Episcopalian. Yeah. I, I I will be. Right. I will now be. I will. Yeah, I will now be serving <laughs> as entrepreneur in residence at a United Church of Christ church. Right. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, I the man. I for years have been searching for. Listen, no faith tradition is going to be perfect. I'm going to have issues with each and every one of them, but which one causes the least amount of harm in my opinion? Because that's all I'm trying to do in the world. I'm going to cause harm. We are all causing harm. How can we cause the least amount of harm? Um, and so in my faith, that, that applies as well. Like I could easily, I love the Catholic tradition. I've thought about converting to Catholicism a thousand times, but I can't at this point because... Now, if, if I was born Catholic, I could see maybe there's a path where I'd still stay in, but I can't convert to it as long as women can't, you know, lead in the church and as long as they continue to harm so many different kinds of people, right? But Episcopalian, it's like, okay, I know there's some weird stuff sometimes and not everything is great, but I think the most amount of people are being invited in. And so, um, and I would never presume, we can move on after this, but I would never presume to tell you, you know, that you should feel more comfortable talking about it because all of our journeys are different. And I thousand percent understand why. The one thing that's helped me become more comfortable with just talking about it um, mm -hmm. and even identifying with something, it, it, it honestly happened in two, like two years into the Trump presidency when more and more things were happening, like more and more fucked up things were happening in the name of God, Jesus, the church, you know, Oof, Christian yeah. nationalism that I, that I literally had a crisis of faith. And I was like, okay, either I leave it all right now. Cause I do not want to identify with those people. Those are not my people. Or I realize that there's actually something here that they're serving such a distorted view of what God, this, this all, this really big love being 
uh, wants to do in the world that I can't let them, like if I leave, George, if you and I leave, then they have a little bit more of the pie, right? They have a, they have a bigger percentage of like Christian nationalists and the weirdos that like are, 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 you know, reading the Bible word for word and are oppressing people with it. Well, they get a bigger piece of the pie. More people are going to think of them when they hear about Christians, right? So anyway, that was the one thing that kept me in was I was like, listen, I cannot have, I cannot let Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates yeah. and Lauren Boebert and Donald Trump uh, and Jim uh, Jordan and all of these wild fill in the blanks. I can't let them have a faith that I still think is like, I don't know what it is. Like, I, I don't know all, I, I have very few answers these days, which is a really great thing, but like, I think it's something so they can't, they don't get it. So that's why I stayed in because I was ready to leave, man. I was ready to go. I was like, Donald Trump's a Christian and I'm a Christian. No, one of us is not a Christian and uh, it might be me leaving. So anyway, that's, that's where we are right now. <laughs> I'm taking up that space. Yeah. Good for you. I, yeah. think, I think the same thing. That's just the thing that really resonated with me and all that is just like, there's just so much I don't know. And like, I think that's the difference between those two approaches is one is about the mystery and the humility. And the other is about, you know, the absolute certainty of good and wrong and, 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 and black and white. And, you know, it, it is, there is so much more gradation than that. Yeah. Completely agree. Okay. Let's inch forward in this conversation. I want to talk about how did, how did you, before we get to dig deep, what dig deep is, what dig deep does, how did, what was the, what was the genesis there for you? Like, how did it come about? I know you said that you were, you're, you're trying to figure out all these things and water was, you know, a, a meaningful thing. And, but like, maybe get a little more specific and talk about was, what was the thing that made you decide, Hey, water's my thing, at least for the foreseeable future. You could change your career at some point, but like water's the thing. There's a big problem here to be solved. And I'm one of the people that's going to get to do it because I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do this. How did that happen? Yeah. And, and kind of what, what age too? like, how long ago was this? Well, in the, in the hundreds of interviews I must have, have given since I started Dig Deep, I've never, I've never come across in, inside my own psyche, a, a crystal clear answer to this question. Uh, I, Fair uh, enough. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a circuitous path. It's, it's, it's crazy where you end up in life sometimes never really anticipating it. I can say for certain, a couple of things. One, I have always been obsessed with water. Um, you know, call it the fact that I'm a triple water sign or that I grew up near water or what, but I'm always, been. I'm like the kid that your mom would take you to the zoo and like, she'd go buy the tickets and she'd turn around and I'd be like strip naked playing in the fountain at the entrance. Like I can't get enough. Amazing. Um, but I think, I think the other irony in all this is that I, I was raised in such a, a sheltered way um, that I, I didn't understand that there were so many hundreds of millions, even billions of people struggling to get access to the resource until college. And then in this period of like deeply trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do and what impact I wanted to have, um, I was I was confronted with that reality and that question and, and something about it like settled in me um, or rather unsettled me. Mm -hmm. um, and ever since then, I, I just haven't quite been able to shake it. And and through that process, like my career has had different different aspects. I mean, I, I started studying law, and I thought maybe I'll work in diplomacy or at the UN. And then, you know, kept getting sort of closer and closer to the work on the ground in other countries, where I thought, well, if you if you want to work on this issue, you have to work in another country, right? You have to work in like a low income country halfway around the world. Um, and then in in 2013, I got a call from a donor named Karen. She was like. 
I want to give you guys 50 bucks. I had started Dig Deep at the time. We were working in, in South Sudan and in Cameroon, building water systems. Really, really great work. Um, I was like, I want to give you 50 bucks and I want you to spend it in the US. And I was like, lady, come on. Like, why don't you let me spend the money where it's really needed? This is the richest country on earth. And she's like, I can't believe you're supposed to be an expert on this and you don't know, you know, that, that there are people in this country who don't have any access to water. And she had been doing a, a Habitat for Humanity style project on the Navajo Nation, the country's largest reservation. And they were building houses without bathrooms and kitchens. And she was like, what the hell? And her, her colleagues were like, yeah, I mean, there's no running water in this town. So why would we build those? Um, and so that, that kicked off this journey, what, what would later become the Navajo Water Project, our first project in the U.S. And by 2016, we had successfully handed our our international work off to local partners, and and now we're the only organization really focused on on this problem. Which I'm realizing now we haven't even talked about yet. But that's that's been that's been the journey. I think like not a clear direction, not a clear through line, a lot of openness to circumstance, a lot of curiosity, and this one sort of unsettling thought at the pit of my stomach, which is just like. I love this, this resource, this thing. It means so much to me. I, I, I feel so connected to it. How could people live without it? It might be helpful for you to, I think most people or a good chunk of the people listening already know what being a WASH organization is, but maybe let's start there. I mean, it's a very simple thing, but describe what being the only WASH organization that's specifically uh, focused. And I, and I think that actually it, 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 it's very telling about all kinds of amazing, smart people like yourself in 2013, before you got that phone call, right? That when we think of water, yes, we might put some money and resources uh, here in the US if it's a US-based organization. But most of the time we're thinking, no, we've got to take this to all these other places and countries, which that is worthy work as well. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. it's bad. To me, it's so telling that Dig Deep is the only WASH organization specifically focused on the U.S., right? So describe what it is. Yeah, so WASH is an acronym. (laughs) I can't believe I use an acronym without even noticing. Uh, Water, Sanitation, and Hygiene. Um, And, you know, it is the work that helps people get access to the clean water they need to live like a healthy, dignified life. Everything from cooking, cleaning, drinking, bathing, you know, maintaining a clean home, freedom from disease, the time you get back to play with your kids or to go to work. It's, you know, water really is like the foundation of our lives, the thing that many of us in the U.S. take for granted. And and most people, when they think of places without water, think of sub-Saharan Africa. And like, in my mind's eye, I can see the army of young people like me getting on planes and going to work on these issues abroad. Um, but in fact, right, right here in the U.S., the the richest democracy on earth, we have 2.2 million people at least and growing who have literally no access to running water at all at home, who leave their house every day. And if they're lucky, drive miles to buy bottled water and use that for everything. Um, Or maybe, you know, take a shower at a truck stop or at school or pull water out of a mine shaft or a creek and boil it on the stove before they wash their hair and drink it and cook. And it's really, um, it's really crazy. I think you know, in the U.S., this is happening in all 50 states. It's got a, a race component to it. Indigenous folks are 19 times more likely than white families not to have running water. Black and Latino families are twice as likely. Like so many things in the U.S., it has a, a history of, of racism at the core of the problem. Um, and the problem's growing. Maybe for the first time in U.S. history, you know, climate change and economic shifts are putting more pressure on old systems that are falling offline and people are losing the access they once had. And so instead of going down, that number's, that number's going up. 
I, I want to reiterate numbers that you just said that I think are just mind-blowing. Let's start with the black and Latinx households are twice as likely than white households lack indoor plumbing. And then that jumps to 19 times for Native Americans. Mm-hmm. One of the, I have, I have many amazing friends that are Native American and that are not Native American that work uh, with Native Americans on reservations all over. Um, <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite people in the world and good friends, Charles Robinson, he and his family started Red Road, uh, an amazing organization, and he and his wife are both Native American, two different tribes. She's from British Columbia, and he's from uh, Birmingham or somewhere in Alabama. Anyway, mm. they're amazing. So, so that tons of work. And I, I've, I've, as someone who, do, as someone who is socially conscious, and someone who, like you, we spend most of our time thinking about how to tell better stories and solve problems and get more people to give a damn. What we have put our Native American siblings through and what they, not just what we did, right, hundreds of years ago and a couple hundred years ago and a hundred years ago and 50 years ago, but what they still go through, like the, the owners of this land have been so mistreated that there are 2.2 million people that lack, 2.2 million people in arguably the wealthiest country on the planet still don't have running water. And because of the numbers, I'm not going to do math right now, but maybe you could, maybe you could get more specific, but like, because of the numbers you just shared, most of those are native Americans that lack this life, this life altering and life giving thing. Like I can't imagine living without water. Like I use water from the moment I get up and I chug a bunch of cold water and then put water on for my first cup of coffee. And then the last thing I do every night is chug another glass of water, right? And all day long, I'm turning faucets on, you know, I don't waste, but like I'm, you know, faucets and a quick shower and this and that, like, um, that's so wild to me that in this country, 2.2 million people, most of them being Native Americans. Yeah, it is, it is wild, I think. Well, to your point, you can't imagine it. Like I, I used to struggle with, I still struggle with that sometimes too. Like I, I see this work every day. I interact with it on the ground. I'm, I'm there often in that first moment when someone turns on a tap for maybe the first time in their lives, um, which is just wild. We could have a wild. whole hour just about what that looks like. Um, especially when, you know, maybe you have a TV at home and a cell phone and live down the street from Taco Bell. Um, but I, I digress. I think the imagination of it is really powerful, right? Cause you have, you have the average American who uses a hundred gallons or more of water per day. And then you have wow. one of our clients who often uses less than a gallon. And the irony is that the, the people that have the most water have the least connection to it. And the people that have the least water have the deepest connection to it. Um, and, Connection just in the sense of it's scarce and it's precious and they know that, but also in many cases, like a deep cultural, spiritual connection to it, as in the case of most of the tribes we work with. And um, Deep's work is about facilitating an exchange between those two groups of people. You know, for those that are well-resourced and have access to water, it's often in the form of money or attention or, you know, policy pressure or whatever. And on the side of folks without any access to water, it's it's often this sort of this knowledge, this attitude, this love of water that we're trying to facilitate a transfer of. And, um, you know, we, we have programs obviously that like build infrastructure and that 
build, you know, put in taps and toilets and do job training and policy advocacy. Um, but I think honestly, one of the most powerful things that we have when it comes to imagination is this, this four liters challenge at work where, you know, you, you try to live for 24 hours on just four liters of water, which, you know, the world health organization says is the minimum amount you need. And like you fill up your liter Nalgene or whatever. And it's like, every time you want to use water for 24 hours to brush your teeth or to clean your pits or to make some ramen or whatever <laughs> to drink, certainly you have to drink like, you know, two thirds of it. Uh, it comes out of that bottle and, and to plan your day, maybe for the first time in your life around how much water you have, which is, you know, many, many of our clients wake up every morning and their first thought isn't like, Oh my God, that presentation at work or like, ah, shit, I gotta drive my kid's carpool or whatever. It's like, how will I get enough clean water for my family and I to make it through the day? And what does that mean about what I can do and not do and buy and how much time I have? And, um, yeah, that experience is, is so different and, and yet it's so present. It's in all 50 States. Um, and I think the, well, I mean, I'll stop there for a second. I'm like, I'm going on and on, but I get really into this. <laughs> no, this is good. This is so good. Do you, so this, this four liter challenge that you just mentioned, that's interesting to mm -hmm. me. That's, that's something that I will be doing very soon. Um, good, because I think it's online. Be, yeah. So, so that, that was my next question is in the show notes, at, you know, when we share this episode, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to link to it because I want people to do that as well. I, so it's not so hard. I grew up in Guatemala I've traveled the world. I've been, I've seen people, not in the US, because I think that's different. That's a different thing happening here. But I've seen people turn on a tap for the very first time in Zambia, Africa, in, in you know, in Hyderabad, India. Like I've seen that happen. And it's a, it's a mind-blowing thing for someone to see running water for the first time. But not here. That's different. That's what that's the that's the wild thing about this conversation is that we're not talking about sub-Saharan Africa. God bless those amazing people. We're talking about those living, those living right next door to us in the richest country in the world. So I want to shift for one second and ask, we're gonna get into exactly how Dig Deep does this work. And I wanna talk, and I know you're addressing parts of it all the way through, but I wanna talk about this June 28 paper that was put out, um, and the significance mm, yeah. of it. And, 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 but, I, but I want to talk about our government's role in all this right now, mm. real quickly. Do you have a number? If I were to say, Hey, George, let's, I, I've, I've got a blank check for you. What would it take to get, to not only get water to those 2.2 million people that not just physical water, but like the infrastructure so they can keep having water, but to make sure that no one suffers from lack of water in this country. Like, what would that cost? What are we looking at? I mean, even a rough estimate for like, man, if I could write a blank check to dig deep, because um, our government certainly isn't doing it. We'll get to that in a second. But like, what would that cost? Well, we, we have some estimates now of what it would take to close that water gap in the U.S. Now, the bigger question is what it's, what's it going to take to keep it from widening? Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. And I, I yeah, think because, we know it's yeah, because I, I saw a statistic and you, maybe this is where you're going. It said the number of households without water recently increased in Delaware, yeah, Kansas, exactly. New Hampshire, Idaho, Nevada, South Dakota, Puerto Rico, which is mind blowing to me that in 2022, we're talking about this gap, not narrowing, but widening. Yeah. I mean, and that's climate change and that's economic shifts. I mean, we're working in Appalachia on the Appalachia water project now, which serves folks in rural West Virginia and Kentucky. Um, you know, many people think of those folks as, as, as being white when in fact, some these counties are some of the most racially diverse in that region. And a lot of our clients are black and, um, these are former 
you know, coal mining communities who have been sort of economically decimated by the very necessary shift um, in energy policy in the U.S. Um, but that's meant that the water systems they once relied on that were maintained by those coal companies have fallen offline. And, you know, families that used to have running water haven't had it in 20, 30, 50 years. In other places, like in Alaska Native Villages, you know, water systems once worked. And now with climate change and changes in the permafrost and seawater incursion, like the groundwater can no longer be drank. And so those systems are falling offline. So this this is increasing. I think to get back to your question, it's going to cost us between 40 and 50 billion dollars to close the water gap for the 2.2 million Americans that need service. And that is a government investment that needs to be made. Because when you look at the economics, economists would call this a wrong pockets problem. We know that for every dollar we invest in giving someone a tap or a toilet, we get $5 back. But those benefits don't accrue to like one shareholder. You know, so there's no economic incentive for a private company to say, build a water system in rural New Mexico to serve Navajo families because they're never going to recoup their investment. They're never going to make any money. And we've relied on on private companies and municipal water systems borrowing government money that they usually have to pay back to solve this problem. And sure. those models aren't going to work. Those models aren't going to work. They haven't worked. The, num- the number's growing. It's proof. So 40, 50 billion up front or 40, 50 billion over 50 years to solve that problem. Only 11 or 12 up front, which is less than the U.S. spends on ice cream every year. Um, it's also that, that that big investment is less than we just decided to spend last week or the week before on shoring up microchip manufacturing in the U.S. It's like, this is not a lot of money. Um, but the, the bigger question and the one I don't have an answer for is what's it going to take to keep our water systems functioning and resilient in the face of climate change? I think the American Society of Civil Engineers has estimated that we need at least one or two trillion dollars in investment to keep our current system running. Um, and so that's that's a much bigger question. But about that, my that pay is, grade, maybe. <laughs> no, sure. And that is th- that's a question that I wasn't even thinking about. Obviously, I was I, I know that there's long term money here. You know, you said initially ten or eleven billion, and then forty, fifty, and whatever, and then bigger amounts mm-hmm. and bigger ideas. Um, why though is federal funding for water only fourteen percent of what it was fifty years ago? What's that about? Not even fifty, like forty something years even, ago. It's even less. I think it's only nine percent of what it was in nineteen seventy seven. In, in terms of like the federal share. Well, it's about economic liberalization. I think in the 1930s, we decided to invest massive amounts of money in this nation's infrastructure. And the idea was to create a better life for people. We knew we could, by building a water system, we could eliminate cholera. We could um, improve economic and working conditions, especially in rural agricultural parts of the country. We could boost the development of the nation. And unfortunately, those programs, as effective as they were at extending water access to you know more than 90%, 99% of people in the U.S., they always had a flaw at the heart of them, which is they weren't designed to, to meet everybody. The reason that you know Native Americans are 19 times more likely than white families not to have running water is because those systems were designed to pass them right by. And because the U.S. continues, continues to just live this legacy of broken treaty promises and you know, you mentioned violence perpetrated 50, 100 years ago. Like, this violence is being perpetrated now um, on Native populations. And um, and that's a whole other road we could go down. You know, I'm not Indigenous myself, but I work really closely with a lot of Indigenous folks, including our Navajo Water Project director here at work. And, and this is something she's super passionate about. But we were building this infrastructure. It was never meant to serve everybody. It clearly doesn't serve everybody. Um, but in the late 70s, during the Reagan-Thatcher era, this this wonderful idea of economic liberalization came along. And, and it's not 
no, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened. But the idea was, you know, we moved some of our, our social services and public benefits from government investments to private industry thinking like the market, right? That the magic of the market yeah, could extend right. these services faster and more efficiently. And for water, at least, and, and for many other public services that have a human rights component to it, we've proven that, that that's not going to work. There is no market incentive to serve the last mile. Um, and so if you leave it to the market, um, it'll never get done. And in fact, now we see this problem is growing. So, you know, liberalization is the reason that government investment went from, you know, more than 70% down to less than nine today. And, um, and it's, it's the cliff we're trying to climb back up from. So how does, and again, these are things that you've mentioned a few times during our conversation, but how does it work? How does dig deep work? You know, you, you're working on various, you know, projects uh, on the on the Navajo Reserve. Now you're doing stuff in Appalachia. So, like, yeah, let's just say I, I guess one of the more recent projects is Appalachia. Is that is that accurate from what I was looking at? Yeah, Appalachia's recent. We just we just launched in the Texas Colonias, the sort of border communities along the U.S. Mexico border in Texas. Amazing. Um, I think that's so, our newest since, work. Yeah. So since that's the newest one, like, how is it working these days? Like, what exactly is happening? Because a lot of people listening, you know, they've whatever, they know about Charity Water, they know about, you know, all these different organizations doing this work. What you all do is not unlike what they do, but you obviously have your own way of doing things and how you approach it. So what is currently happening as you're starting up that project right now? Yeah, so the, the heart of our work are community-led projects that bring hot and cold running water and working toilets to people's houses. And in every place we work, it looks a little bit different because it's, it's designed for that place in a participatory process that's led by that community. And, you know, that, that through line of, we call it at work, like nothing about them without them. Like you can see that everywhere mm. in Dig Deep. Mm. 40% of our almost 80 employees are from communities we serve. 100% of our program directors and managers are from the communities we serve. 44% of us have lived without running water ourselves. So the heart of our work are developing these projects, and sometimes they're off-grid projects that use creative technologies, like they might pull drinking water from the air, or they might deliver drinking water by truck instead of by pipe because it's more efficient, and store it in solar-powered systems at people's houses that you know, pump it through a sink and shower and a toilet. Um, in the Texas communities called Colonias, where we're working, you know, those are on-grid projects where we blend private funds with often, you know, county, state, and sometimes federal funding to provide all sorts of services at once. It's, it's streets and, and it's streets and lights and hydrants and wastewater and water and trash and electricity and broadband. Um, so each each project looks a little bit different. The set of partners, the, the the sort of solution set and technology that we use, the approach though, is the same, and that's like a deep trusting relationship with community because we are that community as an organization. Yeah, that's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. Um, here, here's what I'd like to do. Um, could you talk about this? Um, this June 28, closing the water mm -hmm. access gap in the United States report. Uh, I read through it back when your team shared it with me. And then once again, just to, you know, refresh my memory as we, as I prepare for this conversation, talk about this report, talk about what are the, you know, potential ramifications, what it does for you for dig deep and for raising awareness for this problem, because I would say, I would venture to guess 97 out of 100 people listening right now are having their minds blown 
that we're not talking about water projects in sub-Saharan Africa. We're talking about them in states that many of these people live in, like their next door neighbors, you know, a few communities over. So yeah, talk about that report because I, I, I do think it's very important. Again, for those listening, it'll be linked somehow. Um, George will tell me how to do that the best way, but like somehow in the <laughs> show notes for this uh, because I want you to read it. So we started this work because of Karen's call, right? And as we started that work on the Navajo Nation um, and it grew into the, the Navajo Water Project, which is now you know massive, um, we started to get calls from all over the country, you know, asking us, wait, can you, can you come help us? We thought we were the last community in Mississippi or in Alabama or in West Virginia without running water. Um, and we went to the federal government and said, okay, well, what does this problem really look like? Can you give us some census data so that we can map this and figure out how to grow? And and all the federal they agencies were like, well, we don't keep that data anymore. Wild. You know, we thought, yeah, we got to 99% and we thought, I mean, in 2016, census stopped asking if your house has a flush toilet. A year, in fact, that the number of people without a toilet was going up. So like, not only, not only is this problem growing, but we have less and less visibility. And so we set out in 2019 to release the first national report on this. And we worked with some incredible organizations. The woman I co-authored with, Radhika Fox, is now the head of water at the Environmental Protection Agency. And it was the first to really look at, okay, how many million? And what are the racial dynamics? And where do these people live? And what are they experiencing? And, and we went into communities and embedded researchers who were living with and working with people. And... Um, and, and we heard stories about how much this impacts people's lives. And especially we heard how much of an economic impact this has. Like, I mean, that's where you really, that's like, you know, money's like the proxy, right? By which you can measure, most people, especially in the U.S., can measure sort of what's going on in their lives. Sure. And so to give you a, to give you a, like an example of what this looks like, um, we have a client named Brenda who we gave running water to. And I remember first meeting Brenda, actually not long after we started the Navajo water project. I showed up to her house on the back of a water truck and, you know, her family flooded out of the house and they grabbed every drop of water they could take into like cups and buckets and barrels and pickle jars and whatever saucers. And it's like lining every surface of the house. And, and she took some water in a pot and went inside to make tamales. And I, I followed her and was helping her cook. And, uh, I said, Oh, this is so nice. Are you having, are you having family over? Is there a special occasion? She said, no, I, I'm going to put these tamales in this, this cooler I put on this license, I'm going to walk down the hill and I'm going to sell them. And that's what I use for gas money. My husband, he works at a factory and he'd been injured, smashed his foot. We couldn't keep it clean at home. So it got infected. It got gangrene. He's in the hospital 50 miles away in Gallup. And actually he's better. He's been treated. He's been ejected. And now he's sleeping on the streets, has been for a week. And no clean water meant no tamales and no tamales meant gas money and no gas money meant I couldn't get my husband. And that meant we haven't had any income and I'm behind on my bills and wild. And like, you know, yeah, these families are living on like this, this economic cliff. And so at the time when we published that report, we couldn't quantify what that economic impact looked like. Like, what is this costing families? What is this costing the U S economy? And if we had that, if we had that number and could estimate not only what we're losing, but maybe what we stand to gain by closing the gap, we think that would be a really powerful way to motivate lawmakers to, to change this. Like the, the money, the money talks. So um, we released this new report, like you said, on, on, on June 28th of this year, it's called draining the economic impact of America's hidden water crisis. And you can find it at digdeep.org slash draining. And I'll give you it for the show notes. And uh, it really looks at, okay, so, specifically that the u.s economy is losing almost nine billion dollars every year that we allow this to continue and that number will just keep going up as more and more people fall into the gaps 
Um, and we know that because we put together the individual numbers. Like this is causing more than 200,000 new cases of waterborne illness every year. It's causing 36,000 new cases of type 2 diabetes because people have better access to sugary beverages than water. Um, it's causing 71,000 new cases of mental health issues. So to get that big number, you have to piece together all the little numbers, all the little costs that add up on that receipt. And you know that you know, the, the research tells us that the water access gap is causing 200,000 new cases of waterborne illness every year and, and 36,000 new cases of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, from people that have better access to sugar-sweetened beverage than to water, or 71,000 new cases of anxiety and depression. It's costing hundreds of millions of work hours and school hours from adults and children who, you know, have to haul water or are sick from waterborne illness instead of going to school or going to work. It's it's even, it's even causing, you know, deaths, as many as six, 610 preventable deaths every year. Um, again, every year this is happening in the U.S., a completely solvable problem. And when you total that all up, it's at least eight and a half, maybe nine billion dollars we're losing every year that we're just sort of bleeding out. Um, and that's, that's what that report is really all about, sort of putting a, putting a, a price tag on this problem and putting a face to it, too. The... the- I'm I'm not an incredibly smart person, but hearing those numbers that we are losing nine billion a year, it based on the numbers you already gave me about what it would cost to solve this over the next few decades, like this thing pays for itself in like six years based on what we're losing. Right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, this mean, is a yeah. this is a no brainer. Yeah, that's that's the that's the good news. I mean, for every dollar we invest, we get five dollars back. In fifty years, if we made that what forty, fifty billion dollar investment, we could generate two hundred, two hundred fifty billion dollars in return. And I mean, at a time when inflation is so high and we're looking at a potential recession, it's like we're we're looking for all these opportunities to create economic value. And this is such a huge one that will not only do that, but make people's lives better and save them um, and correct in in many cases historical injustices that go back hundreds of years so it's i don't know it's really it's really powerful it's profound work and some people some people love to stay up in the numbers i'm i'm more on the storytelling side i'm more like tell me what that looks like in someone's life you know, you know like i, I want to hear about that experience and, and about what changed when someone got running water but both are really powerful parts of that narrative no, and I was going to the story next, which is, and I'm sure you have a thousand stories, like, correct me if I'm wrong, Brenda, was that her name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a thousand stories like Brenda, but think about that. Even, again, even up until the time, that, even up until the moment you told the Brenda story, I'm guessing that most people were thinking about like, oh, a shower, oh, flush the toilet, uh, make some food for, to, you know, to feed myself, uh, drink some water to stay hydrated. That's what they're thinking when they think loss of water. No, yeah. this, Brenda's entire world, her husband's health, gas to get to and from, uh, you know, being able to make the food to sell to make all of that happen. Everything revolved around her getting water. And there are, in those 2.2 million people in our country that need water, there are hundreds of thousands of stories like Brenda's. And so, yes, we can talk numbers. We can also talk stories uh, any, way, any, any way you want to go. This is something that we can and should solve. Like, this is a no fucking brainer. Like, water is life. Water is medicine. Water is health. Water is everything. 
You know, when I was a kid, and I think the numbers still stand up as far as I know, I was always told, like, you can go three days without, you can go three weeks without food, but you can only go like three days max without water. So even from a, as a young kid, I was like, oh my God, like, you mean I could not eat for a long, long time and still be alive, but if I stopped drinking water for a day or two, I could die? Like, that was mind-blowing to me. But, you know, we grow up and we, especially here in this country, when, whenever I moved back to the U.S., um, like, yeah, you just think, look at the wealth. Look at, I mean, we we are home to several hundred of the couple thousand billionaires in the world. We're, we're home to a good number of the billionaires in the world. We are home to just an astronomical, unbelievable, never before in history amount of money. And we have millions of people that don't have water. That's wild to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, Brenda, Brenda works at a blimpy sub shop. You know, she, she lives in New Mexico. You can call her on the phone. This is not, this is not some crazy thing happening in the middle of nowhere to a couple people. You know, this is probably happening to someone that lives within walking distance of your house. Yeah. Uh, might be a long walk, <laughs> might be a long walk, but you know, you could probably get there. Yeah. Okay. For two minutes, I want you to instill confidence in those listening. If they're, mm-hmm. if their interest is peaked, most of the people listening, including myself, I've spent uh, several decades now uh, working in the nonprofit space or volunteering in the nonprofit space. Um, and I am fairly tired, worn out, exhausted by the, the, the giving and the asks and the this and the that. Only come to find out once I was an adult and I started doing this work and really getting into the weeds to see that so many of these nonprofits, these household name NGOs that we have come to like, yeah, we just know about them. Most of the money that I sent them over the years was not going to the actual work. <laughs> so, so I naturally, because I'm not just the host of this podcast, but I am responsible for the thousands of people that look to let's give a damn for stories, for help, for direction. I looked into the numbers, very, very surface level, but I like what I see so far. Uh, so why don't you go through and again, just for a minute or so, explain how this work is funded, what the percentages are just generally, because I think it will help people. And there's, I'm sure you'll say what I'm thinking, but I want you to go into it first. If you don't, I'll follow up with something. But like, yeah, if people are to thinking, yeah, I want to give to this. I like George. I like these stories. Uh, this is something that is in my backyard that we can solve. Let's go. I want to give to this. Let's give them some confidence that they're giving to something that is um, worthy of their hard-earned money. Sure. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that 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 is what Dig Deep is. It's really a sort of a collection of Americans helping Americans moving those resources around. I think we're mostly grassroots funded. I think, you know, tens of thousands of people give us small gifts every year that we put together and turn into a solar powered home running system on Navajo or a new water line in Texas or, you know, a new water system in Appalachia. And um, that's really our, that's our history, right? That's our backbone. That's how we that's how we came to be. So there's, when you're raising money that way, there has to be a lot of transparency and a lot of confidence because I have to have a couple thousand virtual conversations like that every day and convince people like this is the place to put your 50 bucks. Um, and so we made some decisions around transparency at the beginning of the organization, inspired by others like you know my friend Scott at Charity Water or 
my friends at Liberty North Korea. And we, from the very beginning, raised separate money to cover our overhead and our administrative costs from, you know, a, a small group of venture philanthropists called our Water Council, from sort of the overhead and, op- and operational percentages on grants or on corporate gifts, so that 100% of public donations could go directly to projects. Um, and that is something, even as we've grown into a much larger organization we've been able to maintain, although, man, there were a couple nail-biting years. Um, and then, you know, we have other financial controls in place, too. So we have a, you know, a, a platinum sealed transparency from GuideStar and, and GuideStar and a perfect Encompass score from Charity Navigator. And then also, um, we, we try to maintain this 85-15 ratio. So even if that 15% of money that we're investing in overhead, even if not a single dollar of it comes from a public donor, we still try to limit that number. And, you know, it might stretch to over 20% in some years or go down to 8% in other years, depending on what we're building. You know, sometimes you have to build the infrastructure like in HR or in marketing or in legal, and maybe there's an expensive year. But, um, you know, always we try to maintain roughly an 85-15 ratio and and 100% of public funds go directly to water projects. So they don't get commingled in that 15% that goes to overhead at all. Um, the last thing I'll say is like transparency is so multifaceted, right? It's about the kind of data you're publishing. It's the kind of standard you're holding to yourself. It's also the way we communicate about our work because storytelling is so important. So we're transparent, not just to our donors, but also to the communities that we're really responsible for. Like every time we are taking a story to the press, it's not just like CNN or the Washington Post where we're trying to place this. Like we're trying to place the same story in the Navajo Times and, you know, in rural newspapers yeah, in great. Appalachia and in Texas. And it's like, you know, transparency is something cross-cutting. You, you have to do it across the board. And so financial transparency is really important. I think it's like, you know, a, a, that's how you like ante up in the whole game. You know, you have to do that at least. But if you're serious about it, and I think we are, you can see it in, in the way an organization functions across the board. Yeah. I love all of that. So friends, if you're thinking about giving to what dig deep is doing, um, yeah, you'll see the breakdown. They share the breakdown of, of the percentages and what goes to operations, but you know, just, you can give with the full knowledge that what you're giving is going to, yeah, this incredible work and probably you know, not, not people that you know, maybe, but people that are sharing your same country, maybe your same state that need, that must have this life-giving water and toilets and things that could change the outcome of their lives. Um, so give with confidence. Um, I'll, I'll let you know if I ever am not confident, but so far, very <laughs> confident in the work that you all are doing. Um, George, as we begin to wrap up, um, mm-hmm. I could keep talking to you for a long time. Maybe we'll do another one at uh, some point. But as we begin to wrap up, you've been so gracious to share so much about your life and how Dig Deep came about and the work that you're doing. And I love that little bit on transparency where you are you are even you are maintaining that level of integrity with the people that you are serving right? It's again, I love that whole, that, that last little bit about like, we're not just trying to, you know, get placements in CNN. Like we are, we are trying to really partner hand in hand with the people that we are. Um, and you said 44% of the people that work on your staff have experienced, you know, not have like, that's that, that shows me that this transparency that 
I believe is uh, contributing to your success. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. As we wrap up though, I want to ask you a couple questions. One is, how are you staying inspired these days? These are really hard days. We are uh, crawling our way out of a pandemic. Um, you are leading a nonprofit that is providing a very vital thing to the world. Um, the work is hard. I worked full-time for nonprofits for 14 years. Um, so I know it. Um, how do you keep going? Is there a person, a book? Is it film? Is it music? Is, is, it, is it reading Chicken Soup for the Soul? Like what is keeping you um, inspired? And, and it, could be, it could be a variety of those, but like what are the kinds of things that are keeping you inspired as you continue to do this work in a very tumultuous, weird time in history where you know, there, there are attempted coups on our government. There are, I mean, these midterms are coming up. Like there's just a lot of like, it feels very, everything feels very uneasy. How are you staying inspired? Yeah, I mean, it's, how are you, how are you those, continuing to go forward? It's all those things you listed. Well, maybe not chicken soup from the soul, but it's it's almost yeah. all those things you listed. Good. Um, but I, I I will say two things are have been super, maybe three things have been super important to me. First, the baseline for me is my work. Like I, this is the place where I feel like in this time of chaos, there is something that like matters and is important. And like, you can see and touch and drink and like, bathe in this impact. It doesn't feel abstract. And I think that is really grounding and helpful. And it's like, you know, that water's turning on and that person's drinking it and that feels done. Um, and so there's that, but the, the two things in my personal life, I think I have a, a daily sort of mindfulness meditation practice. Um, also just a, a hot tip. I really, I really like the daily meditations by this, um, this, Franciscan named Richard Rohr, who writes from the desert in New Mexico. So check that out. Um, yes. I get, yeah, I get, I get father Rohr's emails every single day and they are vital. Yeah. Really, really helpful. Even if there's something in there that like doesn't really drive with my own spirituality or sensibility, like they really help me think they incorporate a bunch of other religious traditions too. And I get a lot out of that. So for those of you that are sort of religiously or spiritually minded, hot tip. Um, but I have this friend named Peter, uh, who's a, an immigrant and, um, a real source of inspiration for me in a lot of ways on my queer journey and on my professional journey. And I noticed that the sort of like, you know, anxiety and depression and like sad, deep, deep sadness that I was feeling at the beginning of the pandemic and, and with our, our country's current political situation, like it, it wasn't impacting him as much. And I, I turned mm. to him as like, you're one of the most joyful people I know, like, how are you maintaining this? Um, and he shared a, a, a daily gratitude practice with me. He writes down every morning um, three things that he's grateful for, three things that'll make his day really great, and then a, a sort of an intention or a mantra for the day. And then at night, the last thing he does before he goes to bed is he writes down um, three things that he was grateful for throughout the day and one thing he learned that day. And I find the formula only takes me about five minutes. It's like right. very doable. And something about writing it down creates this ritual and you have to think and process, I think, a little more deeply when you put a pen on paper. So I think that's a really important part of it. But I've been doing that um, every day for about two years now, and it's it's really helped me reframe. And even on tough days, you can sift through your day and find these nuggets that you're like, holy shit, like I had the worst day. And yet, like at 11 o'clock, I had this meeting where like 
this incredible thing happened and I learned something about myself and I would have lost it in like the emotional wreckage that was today if I hadn't have taken the time to sift it uh, out. And so that's, that's really meant a lot to me. I hate you for that last recommendation because I used to be, <laughs> I used to be a really big journaler. I have mm. stacks and stacks of journals. I, I, I oh, haven't kept, me. I haven't kept barely anything from my, I, I, in fact, I got rid of most of everything I owned like four or five years ago, but I kept these journals because every time I would travel every time, like, and I had a daily one as well that I would write almost a page every single day. And, and it was so impactful for me, not just because I could go back and look, you know, even a year later, what was I feeling during this season of life and go back and feel like literally go back to that moment, what I was feeling in real time and, and feel along with that. But also, so I stopped around the time that I started, you know, my, when my partner and I started having kids 10 years ago. I started making excuses like, oh, life is really difficult. It's really hard. I don't have time to journal anymore. And I've journaled very infrequently since then. And very, like, very is a key word here. Like maybe a week, the equivalent of a week or two a year. And I've been trying to get back into it because you're so right that I, even now, you know, I have multiple organizations that I'm running and more that I'm starting and all these collaborations and partnerships and living in New York City with three kids and my wife, like, <laughs> all, like it's a crazy life. But what you just described, something, a practice that could change the entire outlook on my day or my night, right, as I go to bed, takes five minutes, five goddamn minutes. If that, that's generous. It could get done quicker than that. Everybody has five minutes. The busiest person on the planet has five minutes. And I know, you know this, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a walking testament to when I did it consistently, it was, it was life-altering because I got to start my day with gratitude, end it with gratitude. What do I hope for the day? Wrap it up with what did I learn? Like better, it's, and it's way better than like just doom scrolling on my phone, right on TikTok or whatever before I shut my eyes. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's that's the so worst thing you could do. That is, well, I, that I is, admire you for being a journal guy because, like, I I couldn't do like an open end stream of consciousness thing. I I need this like I need this this assurance that like this will only be five minutes. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, and I, I and I do think to, to be fair, that was again when I was I I had I had a lot less going on in life, mm-hmm. and now um, I think I I think I would find the same amount of of benefit from just doing this. Like I don't need, I did the stream of consciousness thing. I have thousands of pages that I've written. I, I think I can get the same thing from this very, um, yeah, this very short, but intentional way of quote unquote journaling. So, well, I mean, you have a lot of homework. Uh, you had a four leaders challenge to do. You have a new gratitude. I know, practice. I know, I know you have, you've yeah. made this next week a little busy for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're um, welcome. last question before we wrap up, mm-hmm. um, decades from now, um, you die. And I'm talking many decades from now, but for some odd reason, Maybe. This, this is a hypothetical. Um, for some odd reason, I have been asked, sorry, I got distracted there. I'm sitting in a room and like the lights went on in the other room. Um, many, uh, so many years from now, I've been asked to give your eulogy. I have been asked to, in front of your friends and family and dig deep community, um, eulogize your what I assume will be a very impactful life. On that day, in a few sentences, what do you hope 
that w- what do you hope would come out of my mouth? You know, this is your eulogy. This is it. Like this is the summary of your life uh, through those closest to you, whatever. What do you hope that I would say on that day about your life, about your legacy, about the work that you did? I would hope that you could point to ways that I had loved deeply and authentically and been loved deeply and authentically. I mean, I think that's the, that's the beauty of those opportunities. And I think I would hope that you could point to some serious mistakes I'd made and ways that I had ways I had overcome them or reconciled from them. And I think if you do both of those things and throw in a couple jokes, you know, you'll have a great eulogy. Done. Done. I mean, that's the jokes, that's, the jokes too. You're going to have the, the jokes. <laughs> we'll have the jokes. We'll have the mistakes, but also the victories. That is life. No, none of us are making just victories. We're making mistakes as well. Um, so that, that sounds like a life well lived. Um, George McGraw, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for sharing about Dig Deep. There are many more things we didn't get to. Again, maybe around two at some point. Um, but thank you so much. I hope that some of the Let's Give a Damn listeners will at the very least follow the work that y'all are doing, contribute when they can, but hopefully some will also jump on board on a regular basis to give to this very important work of seeing our actual neighbors get this life-giving water. So thank you very much. So grateful. Thanks, Nick. Damn Givers, thank you for showing up. Thank you for spending some time this week with George and me. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. And you can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.